0: Hello, City Life. How are we doing? Oh, it's great to be here tonight. My name is Steve Ruggiero, and I am so honored and privileged to be here tonight. Not just because I get to come and spend time with you. It's almost like you're an extended family, but also because Pastor Justin just got back, right? Welcome home, brother. It's great to have you here. Hey, can I have uh, Anthony Hiltz come on up? Come on up, Pastor Justin. Now, Anthony shared a little bit about this shirt. Um, and base camp ministry, but how many of you know that your pastor just doesn't have mad skills at the pulpit, but he's also an incredible, artistic, creative man, and this emblem is from his mind, right? So we want to give this to you, bro. Thank you for the time. So again, um, my name is Steve, and I love coming here because every time we have a regional team meeting. I'm always excited to hear about what's going on at Suffolk, you know, because it's, it's so exciting that all of you are participating and you're reaching the peninsula in such an amazing way. And I just want to say thank you for that. Um, I want to start tonight with a short story. Now, some of you have probably heard it before. So if you have, I ask you just to bear with me. It's a true story that happened 10 years ago on January 12th, 2007. At about 7.51 a.m. on a Friday morning, right, a, a man walked into the Metro subway station in Washington, D.C., casually dressed, jeans, long-sleeved shirt, a Washington Nationals baseball cap. He stopped near a garbage can over by the escalators, and he was carrying a musical instrument with him. He set it down on the ground, opened it, and pulled out a violin. He threw a couple dollar bills into the case, some loose change, as seed money. He turned it around for the passing pedestrians, and he began to play. For the next 43 minutes, this man would play six incredible classic songs, right, on his violin. It was amazing, right? And over 1,100 people would pass him by. Now, most of them were government workers, federal employees. The metro was located right in the middle of Washington, D.C., so probably mid-level bureaucrats with business suits and business skirts carrying their morning bagel, and most of them paid them no mind, let alone any money. But to be fair, though, street musicians are not uncommon in urban areas. They're almost part of the landscape, but as this man played, The music rose to the high ceilings and down the long corridors. And maybe you, like me, when we come upon a street musician, there's a couple different emotions we could feel, right? Maybe there's some amusement, and we're like, wow, this guy's really good, or he is not very good, right? And maybe there's even a little tinge of guilt because he's making his living like this. Or if you're in a hurry, there could even be maybe some frustration. But see, here's the difference on this Friday morning. With this musician, he was being filmed. Why was he being filmed? Because he is one of the finest violinists, one of the greatest classical musicians in the world. In the world. And he was playing six of the most elegant songs ever written on one of the most expensive violins ever made, ever made. His performance was actually being, being filmed. It was set up as an experiment by the Washington Post. They wanted to kind of gauge and, and, and measure people's perceptions and their priorities. Would they listen? I mean, would these folks recognize that here's a master violinist? In the middle of their, of their commute in the morning, would they stop, take a moment, and say, what, what's going on? Or would they keep on going by? See, folks, on that day, on that morning, in an ordinary setting, extraordinary was present. The musician's name is Joshua Bell. He's an internationally acclaimed violinist. Just three days later, he played at Boston Symphony Hall, where just average seats went for $100 to $200. But here at the Metro, Bell played for 45 minutes on, listen, an original Stradivarius that was made in 1713 with a value of $3.5 million. And interestingly, Three and a half minutes into his set, he got his first donation, $1, $1. By the end of his set, Bell netted a whopping, you ready, $32, $32. Afterwards, he was being interviewed, and this is what he said. He said, you know, it was a strange feeling that people were actually uh, ignoring me. Ignoring me. He said, normally when I play at music halls, I get upset if somebody coughs, right? Don't even talk to me about a cell phone going off. I like what he said here. He said, but here, interestingly enough, right, my expectations diminished. I was happy I was getting a dollar instead of some change. And this is from a man who commands $1,000 a minute, Folks, it was the extraordinary disguised as the ordinary. Remind you of anyone? See, 2,000 years ago, God did something similar. He did something similar, except this this person, They, they didn't wear a ball cap, and they didn't play a violin, and they crossed a gap much wider than the metro. Amen? Wrapped in the rags of humanity, Jesus Christ came down to subway earth. John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It would be the ultimate camouflage, a test, if you will, of humanity's perceptions and priorities. But there would be only one performance. One of the son of God coming to earth as a man. It begs the question, doesn't it? What did the reviewers think of his performance when he left their theater? What did they think? Amazing power? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And plenty of it. And plenty of it. Incredible wisdom? Unmatched. Exemplary character? Perfect. But there was one thing. There was one thing that, that stands out above all the rest that he possessed. And in one word, folks. Humility. Humility. And we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. And as we were worship, I began to think. I said, you know what? Where can we go throughout our day when we're going to talk about humility? Is it at work? No, probably not. How many books have you read with humility written across the front? And yet, is it not something that all of us need to come back to to get maybe a refresher, if you will, on Humility. It's actually one of the 24 virtues of the praxis model, our discipleship model is city life. And dare I say, that it, it should be the common thread that weaves through all the other 23. Because if they don't have it, then there's no credibility whatsoever. So our core text tonight, if you have your Bible or your phone, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. As a graduation gift a couple years ago, our church bought me this Bible. It's called the People's Bible, your visual guide to the Bible's most searched verses. It says inside of it that it's it's like a heat map that kind of shows all the, the verses that are searched by popularity for the means of people who visit. Right? And and they break it down. On six different levels, they bold text. Level one are those scriptures that are most searched and researched and read. Level one. And it goes all the way down to level six. And it's, level six is like a Times New Roman 10 font, right? It's almost like you're looking at, a, at an eye chart, at an, at an optometrist office. And, and let me say this going forward, folks, that our scripture verse for tonight is a level one. It's one of the most popular verses of Scripture ever read and ever researched. And let me say this. In light of our times, I find it interesting. With over 31,000 verses of Scripture, that these six passages are some of the most popular, researched, and read. And it, it just adds further confirmation to me that our challenge, you and I, tonight here, is not so much reading it as it is applying it. Amen? Follow along with me. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature or form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This passage is part of a letter the Apostle Paul was writing to a church that he loved. He loved. If, if you remember, he even begins the letter by saying, you know, every time I think of you, I thank God. Every time I remember you, I'm thanking God. And he then, after that, shortly after that, says another level one verse, that I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. But how many of you know, just like all churches, the church of Philippi, they had some problems, too. It wasn't perfect. Because in chapter 4, Paul talks about a couple women who had somewhat of a public disagreement. And he pleads to them, which I think he pleads to you and I here tonight. He said to them, I plead with you, be of the same mind. See, to me, Philippians is one of the reasons it's given to us. It, it helps us understand how we are to relate with one another as well as the world. Listen what F.B. Meyer, a biblical commentator, called these six passages. These six passages, he said, it's, they're almost unapproachable in their exampled majesty. Exampled majesty. Humility. It seems somewhat of a contradiction, doesn't it? A paradox, at least. I believe in this moment, the Apostle Paul is giving us the greatest paradox ever. God Almighty, clothed in humility. If we're to follow Paul's instructions and Jesus' example, then we have to follow a similar path as well. Let me say this. I think we can admit that we live in a time of unprecedented selfishness. Yeah? No one in this room, but out there, I'm telling you, they are selfish. Right? Among many things, many things, many reasons why, social media has created an, an opportunity for us to appreciate and advertise our own glory to a greater degree than ever before, to a wider audience than we ever thought possible. Right? It was Augustine who coined the Latin phrase, in curvatus in si. And what it means is to curve or turn inward on oneself. He, he used it to describe sin. It means to turn inward on oneself. It describes a life that is inward focused on one's own self, not outward focused on God and others. The question. I want to ask you that I asked myself as I was writing this. Are we willing, you and I, to appear ordinary for the sake of his extraordinary? Are we willing to do that? Here's my point. When we demonstrate Christ-centered humility, we don't draw attention to ourselves. We direct it to him. Amen? How do we do that? How do we develop Christ-centered humility in a society that is saturated with self? How do we do it? I believe we do it by following five paradoxical paths. Can you hear me? Five paths. In a book, what do you call it, by Dave Harper about um, rescuing ambition, he identified these five paths. He said, hey, these are the five paradoxical paths that Jesus used. And I think it's something that we need to look at tonight to have the spirit of humility fall down on us in here tonight. So walk with me, will you, tonight. Hang with me for a couple minutes to look at these five paths together and let the Holy Spirit talk to you and me about maybe some areas that we need to address. The first paradox. The greatest fulfillment, right, is found in emptiness. It's found in emptiness. In Aristotle's famous writings, Ethics, he uses the analogy of a, listen, of a curved piece of wood to describe human nature. He said, in order to eliminate warping or curvature of the wood, A skilled woodworker must slowly apply apply pressure to the opposite direction, essentially bending it straight. I believe that skilled woodworker, that carpenter savior, Jesus, applies that pressure to us. Hence the bending of our lives to look more like his. Empty ourselves? What are we to empty ourselves? Well, let's start with one word, ego. Ego. Ego, our desire to be first seen, recognized, applauded, promoted, honored, followed. Should we go on? It's in all of us. It's in all of us. Amen? Ryan Holiday an Ego is the enemy said, Ego inside each of us is like that petulant little child, always wanting its own way over anything or anyone. It's it's the desire to be better, right? To know more than, to be greater than, richer than, more spiritual than. It's in all of us. In all fairness, he goes on to say, look, we're not all egomaniacs. We're not. But ego, ego is at the root of almost all of our problems and our obstacles. Amen? From why we can't win. To why we need to win all the time at other people's expenses. This path, folks, it's a road. It's like a road test for what it means to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, listen, to you and to me, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Listen, imitation is more than the sincerest form of flattery when it comes to living the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is that attitude he had? Well, we read it earlier, didn't we? That he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. In fact, what the NIV says is he didn't use it to his advantage. In other words, though Jesus himself shared all the the rights and, and, and the privileges and the position of heaven, he came down and he didn't use any of it for his benefit. Rather, he laid his life down. For who? You and me. You and me. Can you see the irony? We see fulfillment in what we own, in what we've acquired, what we've attained, positions, degrees, and houses, right? We see fulfillment in that. He had that, and he left it all. To come here. Bill Hybels said, this may be the most countercultural chapter in the Bible. The most countercultural passage in the Bible. Look what he said. If you want to be truly great, then the direction you must go is down. You must descend into greatness. Greatness is not the measure of self-will, but rather self-abandonment. The more you lose, the more you gain. The tension, folks, the struggle in us is real between hubris and humility. And it goes on all day long. And here's the interesting part. Wouldn't we love if someone just came down? I was saying, telling somebody the other day that humility is often recognized by its absence and not by its presence. Right? When it comes to humility, look, you're not going to hear this. At too many places. I mean, where are you going to go where you're going to kind of drive humility into you? Listen, it's up to you and it's up to me. Nobody gives it to us. Nobody gives it in hands and, hey, here's some humility for you. You're so humble now. In fact, Jesus' own brother, James in 4.10 said this, hey, you and I, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So if it wasn't James, how about Peter? Peter, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We have to do it. It requires your actions and mine. At Regent University, Dr. Kathleen Patterson, she's a resident research expert on servant leadership. And she said one time, she said, there's a difference between choosing to serve And being a servant. See, because if I choose to serve, I'm still in charge about what, how, when, and where. Right? She said the goal here is to become a servant. That your life is characterized by serving. The idea is to become a servant, to look more like Christ and live our lives like him. That's tough. Look. Again, no selfish people in here, but I'm here to tell you, it's not easy. Amen? That's just one. Number two, it's wrong to think first about our rights. The phrase, not counting equality, something to be grasped, it sounds good, right? It sounds like good devotional content stuff, good Bible study stuff. That is until it comes to you and me. It's a good example of what I talked earlier about, reading and then applying. How about when you're waiting for a parking space and you got your turn signal on and somebody whips in there in front of you, right? How's that for humility? What about when you do all the work and someone else gets all the credit? You know, how about when you're passed off for that ministry position that you know you're qualified for, but they're just not pointing to you? What's going on? I had a friend of mine. He was at Walmart. You know, they got the long lines. They got like 30 registers, and two of them are open. And so he's standing in line, right? And it was real long. So they said, hey, we're going to open another register over here. So he was like, okay. He kind of moseys over. He was like number seven in this one. He's on number three in this. He's standing there in line. About a minute goes by, and this lady comes over, and she like kind of gets right in front of him. He was like, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. She says, I was in front of you over there. In the other line. Who does that? (laughs) Right? A minute later, two minutes later, you're getting... Because... Humility. We all have real examples, (laughs) don't we? Right? And if you're like me, your immediate reaction is, whoa! What about my rights? I mean, rights are a good thing, right? We're willing to talk about pride and ego... That gets in the way of humility. But don't come tracing around my rights. Rights are a good thing. We're, equality is a good thing. We should be fighting for them, right? I mean, I, I was told I have inalienable rights, even if I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Who had more rights than Jesus Christ? Who had more rights than Jesus? He had equality with God. A right to be worshipped by everybody and everything, and he gave it up for you and me for our salvation. And listen, it's not that rights don't matter. They do. When someone is wronged, it's an injustice, and it's oppression, and they deserve a defender. But while we want to be known as a defender of rights, we don't want to be the one who's always complaining about our rights, right? We don't want to be the one that's always consistent saying, what about my rights? What about mine? To follow Christ means that our allegiance to him has to supersede our desire for our rights. That's hard teaching, but it's a fact. Here's what I've seen. When we keep fighting for our rights, we have a tendency to slide over into an area I call entitlement. Now, an attitude of entitlement causes us to demand that other people make up for our mistreatment. What happens is we start avoiding looking inward, and we start spending all of our time and our energy looking at other people's outward. Dr. John Townsend wrote a book called The Entitlement Cure. In it, he said, the way you overcome Entitlement is by choosing the hard way. The hard way brings us back to our core scripture because how do I overcome the hard way? Glad you asked. Rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Ever heard of A.W. Tozer? Few things are more depressing than that of a professed Christian defending his proposed rights and bitterly resisting any attempt to violate them. Such a Christian has never accepted the way of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's hard stuff. That's hard. We're to be defenders of rights, but don't be the one who's always complaining about your rights. Rights are good. Men and women have died for them. But at the end of the day, We are called to model our allegiance to him and not to what we want or we believe, we expect. Amen? That's only two. Just a couple more. Who loves humility? Right. (laughs) Path number three. Hey, (laughs) if you didn't know, it's really something to be nothing. It's something to be nothing. Christ, our Savior, could have came down here and been emperor of the world. Taken the highest position that earth had to offer. But that's not what he chose. See, our scriptures tell us that he took on the form of a servant. And servant is an amazing word when we we hear it in respect to God, but it only begins to capture the scope of the sacrifice when we look at it in its original context of the Greek, which is the word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. Accurately translated, it means a bond slave. A bond slave. One who voluntarily puts themselves in slavery to another. I know it's provocative. I know, but it's scripture. God intentionally chose this metaphor to show us the all-encompassing claim that the gospel has on our life. It has to be that. Oswald Chambers, another great man, said, The passion of Christianity is that I deliberately sign away my own rights and become a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Hey, until I do that, I do not even begin to be a saint. Folks, the career path for the Christian is different for those in the world. It is. They have more choices. They can do and be as selfish as they want. You and I, we're not supposed to do that. Andy Stanley wrote a book called Enemies of the Heart. And in it, he talks about four different attitudes, guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. And he breaks down jealousy, and he, he, uses, he says it's when we feel like, it's an attitude that we feel like from jealousy that God owes me. God owes me. You know why I say that? Because I see what he's given everyone else that I know. I see what he's given them and them, and he hasn't given me those things. So we're mad at him. And at the end of the day, our issue really isn't with other people. It's between us and him. If that's not enough, what happened to all the love scriptures, right? If that's not enough... There's more. Paul also says, do you remember in school when you had those really cool say, hey, there's a test tomorrow. And when I say something and it's going to be on the test, I do what? I stomp my foot, right? We love those teachers. Well, here's a foot stomping moment because there's going to be a test. Paul also said, consider others more than ourselves. Okay, to me, that's just crazy talk. Everyone? Everyone more important than me? See, that's a tough one because we like reading it about others, and we like telling others, you know what the Bible says, consider me more than you. See, as soon as we read that, we immediately kick into this place of rationalizing. We we create margin, exemptions, caveats, footnotes for us. You don't know what it's like to live with him. You have no idea what it's like coming home every night to her. It's harder for me because of my teacher, because of my boss, because of my pastor. It's just harder for me. So this doesn't really lie to me. Because if I do those things you're asking me to do, aren't I just, what do they say, feeding the beast? Right? We must remember our calling, folks, it's not about fairness. It's about faithfulness. Never underestimate the unique unique work that God does by putting you in circles with difficult people. Don't forget why he's doing that. Because he knows that when he does that, it's going to cause, for some of us, for me, All that selfishness to come to the surface. And now, it's opportunity time. Because now it's all there. But it leaves a gap, a hole. Something where I can now take Jesus and put him at the center. Selfishness to the surface, Jesus at the center. But that only happens, right, when we're in the midst of the difficult people. The hard times. Matthew 23, 11-12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. I didn't write it. Don't be mad at me. Right? I challenge you. Take that attitude to your work. Take that attitude home. Live that way with your family. And you see, if they don't begin to recognize the extraordinary in the midst of the ordinary. This is a calling. This is a requirement for all of us. For all of us. Number four. Almost done. When it comes to (laughs) self-evaluation, you can read. Don't always trust what you see. You know why? Because this is the self evaluating the self. Two weeks ago, I spoke a message called Blind Spots. I talked about that The move that has saved me more times than anything else when it comes to driving. This move right here. You Ready? Oh, That was it. It's like die, live, die, live. That's it. How many times have we been like, oh, my gosh, they were right there almost about to crush me. That little move saved my life more times than I can count. You and I, we have blind spots. I defined it as an area in our life that's difficult for us to see but left unattended will hinder or injure us and those that we encounter. When we evaluate ourselves, we have a tendency to ignore those blind spots in our life. And dare I say that selfishness, pride, hello. Oh, there it is. And it's so funny because our bright lights are on and everyone else's. I can see all y'all's pride and selfishness, but when it comes to me, what are you talking about? I'm just like Jesus. I got little things every now and then, but mostly I'm just like Jesus. <laughs> Come on. Is it just me? Be careful that you don't fall into the, what's the old uh, axiom people say is that we, we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. Right? Have you ever said, I didn't mean to do that, so, so don't hold me to that because I didn't mean to do that. But you, you said fill in the blank, right? Paul. To Rome, 12.3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I think if we just cut that out right there and kept that, if we just lived, I think all of our lives would be different. I know the people around us would be much happier, right? But again, it's the blind spots. We have a tendency to believe we're here when in reality we may be here. And that's why David said in Psalm 119, 29, Lord, keep me from lying to myself. Keep me from lying to myself. Listen. Listen. If God is always telling you how great you are and how good you're doing and that don't change a thing, you probably maybe, may have created a God of self. If he's always telling you that you're terrible, you're a loser, you're good for nothing, and you're a failure. Newsflash, that's not him either. That's the adversary who is what? The accuser of the brother, right? Teaming up with your own brokenness and telling us what a failure we are, how terrible we are. Neither of are God. See, God, ladies and gentlemen is the perfect paradox. That's why it says in Romans 11, listen, consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God, both sternness for those who fell, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness. He has both. He does both love, discipline. Can I have the worship team come up, please? Told you it was going to be a quick journey. Right? You guys, oh my gosh, I can't sit here for 40 minutes, listen to humility. <laughs> listen, God is the perfect paradox. Love, discipline. Let's look at the last one. True humility promotes. Godly ambition. True humility. I don't want you sitting there thinking, man, what is this guy? I don't even know him. He's telling me I can't do anything. I can't, I can't go after my dreams. I, can, I, I, I can't do great things. I, I have to serve everyone. I mean, what is he talking about, right? Is he telling me I have to settle for a, a life of mediocrity? Absolutely not. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. When we pursue God-sized goals... With Christ-centered humility, amazing things happen. It's a combination of supernatural transformation. Again, when you and I pursue given goals with Christ-centered humility, supernatural transformation happens. God puts his purposes and his plans in our heart. And just like humility never restrained Jesus, It doesn't restrain us. It releases us. That's why God said, if you read Titus 2.14, God calls us to follow his example, and he says, be zealots for good work. Be zealots for good work. If we're too humble to aspire to great things, that's not humility. That's not humble. Humility is never an excuse for inactivity. It's not. Talking about our dreams for God isn't proud. It's essential. And if you and I hope to become everything that God's called us to be, then we have to not only read these scriptures, we have to live them. We have to model them. We example in our home for humility. Humility is never professed. It's recognized. Amen? You can't walk into a room and say, hey, here's the humble guy. Right? Let me get a shirt. Humble. People see it in you. And it's not an event. It's a character. It's a lifestyle. I'm going to finish with this. When I spoke that blind spot message, I gave them four things to do, just to begin doing. And I think they apply here because, as I pointed out earlier, oftentimes the opposite of humility, pride and selfishness and arrogance and ego and all that, we, we don't usually come in and say, hey, I'm the guy, I, I got a lot of pride, bro, I got a huge ego, you know, I'm really selfish. You want to go out to lunch? You pay right? Think about it. They're in our blind spot. They're in mine, and they're in yours. So I want you to do four things. I want us to do four things. One, it's not a big surprise. Folks, we gotta pray. We gotta pray. Jesus was able to pinpoint exactly what was going on in people's lives. He didn't walk around it and beat around a bush like we do because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. He said, this is your issue. Now go and sin no more. Pray. As we go into worship tonight, just ask him, Lord, was he talking about me? And if you don't hear anything, ask your spouse. We'll get to that. So pray. Pray. Right? Number two, when you pray, listen. And listen. Listen and look for patterns. Are there patterns in your life? Always talk, right? Is it always coming down to what you wanna do? Pray, look and listen for patterns. And number three, have the courage to ask someone you trust for feedback. Sit down with them, have the courage to say, where do you see my pride? When am I selfish? being selfish right now. Tell me. Be honest with me. Because if you lie to me and you sugarcoat it, you're not helping me. Because then i got to answer to it to Him. I'd rather deal with it here than deal with it there. Amen? Pray. Look and listen for patterns. Have the courage to ask people, what do you see in me? Seek feedback. And the last one that we can do beginning tonight commit to making small changes. Commit to making small changes in your life tonight. And when you do, the appearance of ordinary all of our lives takes on the presence of extraordinary. Let's worship.